Fake news now, fake news forever. Fake news must never die. Final audio tribute to Paul Krasner. Hi everyone. Welcome to episode 8 of Spoken Word with Electronics. Pretty good week over here. Good clear air outside and some sunshine. I'm adjusting okay to this uh, new reality. Hope you're doing well. This week I'm going to play the last two tracks in tribute to my friendship with Paul Krasner. You'll find each of these in the playlist as Side A and Side B. Side B is called Optimism. I'm uh, realizing this is the first time since I've shifted to a radio show format that I've included any of the Krasner tracks. So while there have already been four of these posted, I've never really explained what these recordings with Paul are about. Paul Krasner, if you're not familiar, was a very effective writer and revolutionary type person. He had an amazing sense of what his own rules were and seemed to keep his cards close <laughs> in terms of what those those rules were. And so he got away, I mean, he got away with some incredible things. He's a wonderful person to learn about if you're not familiar. Uh, I would say if you wanted to start somewhere, you could just easily start at The Realist, which is uh, an archive that I did for Paul. That was a great moment in my life. Paul did some incredible stuff. There was a time in the 1960s through around the 1980s when Paul was a bit of a household name. People like Ken Kesey, Kurt Vonnegut, George Carlin, and John Lennon considered him a close friend. Harry Shear, I think, uh, was a very close friend of him right up uh, till Paul's death. I'm sure they probably consider each other close friends still. <laughs> if you're known by your friends, I suppose. And if you read early Hunter S. Thompson correspondence, you'll actually see a lot of references to Paul Krasner as an influence, both for uh, ways of thinking and ways of writing. Paul was known for his magazine, The Realist, which many consider to be the hippest or most mind-bending magazine of the early 60s. Other magazines caught up to it, establishing the underground press movement. I guess it sort of peaked as a concept with Rolling Stone, but few magazines ever took on The Realist for its humor. Also, it's risk-taking, certainly. Paul got a nice FBI file. He was sued by the Church of Scientology. He had a whole bunch of weird things like that happen in terms of harassment. Technically, I think he was considered one of the FBI's dangerous minds. This is a list of people making America worse for the subversive jokes. This is a list of people who the FBI considered a dangerous threat to the thought process of America. The Realist was included on a list of magazines making America worse due to their subversive jokes and observations. So, when you're a dangerous mind, you know, you run your own game, and it's a generosity on your part to share ideas with others. So, I think Paul made his own universe with The Realist. He could, uh, he knew people wanted to get in the door to read it. You know, they knew it was an unusual thing. At the time, the only other kinds of literature was really uh, corporate or company-controlled media, like uh, Look Magazine or Life. And a lot of the newspapers hadn't had the new journalism movement yet. 
So their reporting was really stiff and stilted. The only place that you could read sort of an identity was with the realist and some others. And it, going up to about 1963, and then some other stuff starts showing up. But the realists were there in 1958. And I guess you could say the village voice happened first. The big difference between the papers, both of which came out of New York, was the realist was just Paul. It was like a performance on paper. It was just him, whatever article he wanted to run. The structure and the way that you read each issue, that was his design. Village Voice was much more of a committee thing. Literally, it was a committee paper for the community. The realist was totally different than that. So when you're a dangerous mind, it's a generosity on your part to share ideas with others. And you could shape this agreement between you and your readers. Paul's deal with his readers was he could share with them his way of thinking. The only trade-off would be that you'd have to put up with being lied to just as often as you were being told the truth. Or maybe not. Maybe the magazine was 100% true, maybe it was 0% true. That's the fun when you're reading it. Think of this empty landscape. No media existing. Certainly no internet. Maybe some strange radio or some bootleg books because, you know, we're still uh, dealing with obscenity being an illegal issue, you know. So the realist took on some weird stuff. I mean, it was one of the first papers to find a, a way that you could print the F word. They did so academically. That was discussed in the Lenny Bruce segment. So if you were offended by the realist, all the better. If you read a fake article in the paper and thought it was real, joke's on you. Being lied to with a wink can feel very fun. I think one of the funniest personal jokes in, uh, in The Realist was this prank they played on Jules Pfeiffer, where Paul found a cartoonist who drew exactly like Jules Pfeiffer. In the part of the cartoon where Jules Pfeiffer normally would sign it, the parody uh, cartoonist signed their name. Might have been Dick Linden, but that would be strange. But he could pull it off. It just. But anyway, I can't remember the exact cartoonist, and I apologize. But the prank was, it was just this weird kind of realist-written Jules Pfeiffer cartoon. And everyone was telling Jules Pfeiffer about this great cartoon that he had in The Realist. And he just went furious. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I think that the next issue actually sort of carries some gossip about their conversation with Jules Pfeiffer, about him not having drawn the Jules Pfeiffer comic on the front of The Realist, which again, wasn't signed Jules Pfeiffer, but that's, you know, I mean, there, nobody else draws like Jules Pfeiffer. That was just a great prank. If you were offended by The Realist, all the better. If you read a fake article in the paper and thought it was real, joke's on you. The Realist wanted to compliment you by presuming you were intelligent, and it expected you to be your own vetter of information. It also thought you probably enjoyed being lied to. Being lied to with a wink can feel very fun, and sometimes thinking you're being lied to when you're actually being told a completely true story can be very, very funny. Can you imagine you are talking to somebody who has no connection to the country and hasn't read a single piece of news about the Donald Trump presidency so far, and so they just sort of ask you, so tell me what Trump's done in the last two years. 
or in the last four years. As president, can you just give me a list of things he's done? And this is a friend of yours. And so you guys get along really well and you just say like, oh man, you haven't heard? Well, let me start on day one. And you just list the 6,000 weird things he's done. <laughs> can you imagine how many times uh, the person listening would think that you were just totally pulling his leg? You know, can you imagine how funny that would be? But it makes me sad that Trump has uh, really ruined what we probably can do with satire and lying. I think there's a lot of safeguards now that are being built out to only let people on social media have access to vetted news sources, which is totally legitimate. But I wonder about how alternative media is going to go about establishing itself and getting onto these whitelists. And for somebody like myself, you know, I was never a regular media person, but I published a pretty good blog for about 10 or 15 years. And so I wouldn't be a regular vetted news source. I just would have a scoop or I would have something funny to post or I would have uh, something unique. Uh, people like myself, you know, um, we're already losing the Google war with, uh, with these corporate things. I mean, I think Trump has been such a crazy news source to handle. Even legitimate news source feels like a prank played on your mind. You know, like the president came on the news today and showed everyone his new Kleenex box shoes that he's been wearing the last month. Some of you would be like, there's no effing way he did that. And you would have to say, yeah, he did. And then he went on Twitter for a week and complained to everybody because nobody believed that he would have these really amazing Kleenex box shoes. He'd insult a lot of people. Drill into our mind for over a week about these Kleenex box shoes. Can't believe he thought it was a lie. I mean, that's just one example of something Trump would do. And it's uh, right up in line with any other Trump headline. But it's even a question that he might still win the second term is horrifying. How do you mess it up? So you can't really mess it up by taking it straight on. You just got to figure out a squirrely way into the back corner. And that's where fake news can really be an asset. This idea that fake news destroyed the last election because somebody interfered with us by using it proves that America doesn't make enough fake news on its own. If the Russians are able to make a bunch of fake news that'll totally bomb it for you, the candidate you want, then you need to play better defense and actually make your own fake news and bomb your candidate. I say this as somebody who made some fake news very successfully a couple times. If you were offended by the realist, all the better. If you read a fake article in the paper and thought it was real, joke's on you. The Realist expected you to be your own vetter of information. When you read an issue of The Realist that made for what people call a mindfuck, there never was an answer key on what was true or false. It was like doing a New York Times crossword and to fill out your card correctly, you just had to trust that a 10-letter word for green button was mescaline and not a garment term like decorative. So this current world of shaming fake news is well-intended, but makes for a dumber population. It's not difficult to vet information for how truthful or well-reported it may be 
In fact, we've never had so many research tools available to us. So why, during this massive era of information, are we becoming dumber and more gullible as readers? And why are you being manipulated into shaming people for spreading fake news? <laughs> All this is going around so much that authentic news sources are identifying fake news as a crisis. What this means is we're starting to censor news again. In the future, it'll probably be uh, censored a lot because this will be the vetting term. This is Trump's winning achievement and among the most destructive gaslighting he's done on our minds since he uh, was made abuser in chief. Trump, along with Roger Stone, created the fake news idea to dissolve public trust in our newspapers, but they also did it to keep satire from attacking them. I'll expand on this after side A, but one of the greatest strengths an individual has to challenge authority is to misinform. Paul knew this, and he was one of the heavy change makers in the 60s for this reason. A lot of people compare The Onion to The Realist for its jokes though I still think The Realist could be more hilarious and surreal. Can you imagine The Onion having half of its articles in a given year legitimately true? And how strange it would be to read that half paper? Kind of would match what reality feels like in a way, but that's also what The Realist was. It wasn't just The Onion for its headlines and jokes, it was half true too. So the audio that you'll hear on side A this week discusses the realist's most famous and successful joke. I'm calling this first track the parts that were left out of the LBJ story, which is a reference to the original realist article titled The Parts That Were Left Out of the Kennedy Book. Before I jump into it, I want to give you this preface, though. You are about to learn the LBJ joke, and there's a chance you might want to tell it to some people. So hear me out with this caution. No one ever tells the joke right. If you've tried to tell this joke correctly, there's a chance you've totally flubbed it. I mean, I've seen a lot of people mess it up. If you tell it wrong, you're really going to make people uncomfortable. But if you learn how to tell it right, you might delight an entire room of people. The trick to telling this is to not give it away in the beginning. <laughs> I have a, uh, a way to sort of describe what I mean by telling it wrong. I've seen people tell the LBJ joke to a crowd. Most of the audience have a confused face. The speaker often informs them, correctly, that this joke has been famous in political circles for over 50 years. Getting the LBJ joke wrong in terms of delivery is like telling the aristocrats joke and never doing the setup about the family and the dog and their great life as entertainers or ignoring them ever going to visit their agent and have the father pick up his two daughters on his shoulders and say to the agent, we have a great act. Not telling the LBJ joke correctly is like me uttering the punchlines from the aristocrats joke without any of that setup. The LBJ joke is a story joke, just like the aristocrats. But it's funny because it's meant to be read like a news report. So at the same time, you don't tell people that you're telling them a joke. To modernize this joke and set the scene for you, let's imagine that Obama was president and Trump was his vice president. This is as 
Paul suggests possible, but not probable. But it's probable partly because Trump was a Democrat at one point. Say that he, for some insane reason, he is picked as the running mate for Obama, and they win. And let's say it's uh, the Obama White House with Vice President Trump. I like to make this comparison because the success of the LBJ joke has these contrasts. As there's contrast to that scenario with LBJ as the president after John F. Kennedy. LBJ was kind of a very crude person. There is a lot of profanity stories, some very crude ones. Not that a profanity story is terrible, but verbally abusive sorts of profanity. He was known to solve arguments by aggressively exposing himself. <laughs> he would do that to an entire room, just sort of unzip and flop it on the table. And uh, that's not a fake story. You can find out stories about LBJ's office etiquette. So it's plausible to suggest no one has been a filthier acting president than Trump since LBJ. They're like Republican and Democrat versions of each other. Or at least that was the public perception of both Trump and LBJ after each became president. People really thought LBJ had stolen the job from JFK. And when Trump won, people were pretty upset as well. They thought some really foul shit had happened. If you add in Vietnam, the draft, and the increasing role of the FBI on harassing college-age people. There was a lot of hostility to air out on LBJ in 1967. There's a chance his public anger was not appropriate. I wasn't alive at the time. I know LBJ did achieve a lot of good, including the Civil Rights Act. But if I were to think about it, you know, his very crude, sort of beastly uh, he-man behavior wouldn't have survived five seconds on Twitter before instantly becoming canceled. And in a way, he was canceled. LBJ chose not to run for a second term. I mean, that would have been a weird one, but I think he had every right to run for what would be his second term. So that's the setup here. Let's put Obama and JFK's role in 1963. I think Obama and JFK comparisons are valid for a lot of reasons. And as I've said, Trump and LBJ are comparable as well. So let's say Obama was riding in his convertible through Dallas, Texas, when all of a sudden a hidden Mark Zuckerberg shot him in the head. Obama dies on the way to the hospital, and a call to Vice President Trump is made. Trump assumes office that night. Famously, a photo is taken of Trump standing next to a weeping Michelle Obama. President Obama only got to serve two and a half years of his term. Lots of people think Trump might have had a part in that. And now Vice President Trump is our president and he goes on record that he wants to ramp up the draft. In this era, can you imagine how furious the world would be at Vice President Trump? So rewind that back to LBJ. That was the public mood at the time on Lyndon Johnson. Democrats had lost a lot of the counterculture support because their leadership was killing people, literally by sending young people to Vietnam or putting them in jail for not going to Vietnam. So the moment was right for this joke to be printed. And it took such a peg 
out of LBJ precisely because people thought or wanted to think it was a real story. It's remained in political and prankster circles as one of the best political jokes ever played in print. LBJ was hounded by many people who thought it was a real story too. <laughs> I'm sure LBJ got some vicious jokes. So, in praise of fake news and how to deliver it, let's hear Paul Krasner tell the LBJ joke correctly. The first part opens up with him being interviewed on cable access in the 1980s. You'll hear the interviewer wanting to tell the punchline first and ruining the delivery. What I love about this opener is Paul's management of the other person talking. <laughs> Paul has, by this point, I'm sure, obviously heard hundreds of people tell him his own joke, and he has had to hear them totally flub it. So his skills on dismantling the interviewer and retelling the joke correctly is, is commendable. I mean, to be laughing into the, the joke. It's a very fun moment. And uh, in non-pandemic eras, I hope that it's uh, of use in the future too. this recording. He's able to completely make an elegant scene, which is what is important with the joke. As Paul says, context is important. With that, here's the first part of the last two pieces on Paul Krasner. I miss him. 